All right, mic check. I think everything's working. Let's do a show, guys. Welcome to 2023. Let's do a show. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to 2023. This is Just Human number 166, and I'm back. I took a long break. I apologize. Well, no, I don't apologize for it at all, actually. Um, I had a great time. I hope you all had a great Christmas and a happy new year. I took like 10 days off, I think, Um, something like that. I disconnected from all of my social media as much as possible. Um, all my news feeds. Uh, I, I have like, what I tend to do is I, for news and information, I tend to go to like Twitter, Telegram, Reddit, True Social, pretty much in that order. And I have certain, certain accounts and whatnot that I check on the regular to see what news, you know, is coming out. And what I did was I just broke free of all of those. And I just checked in once per day to see if Durham or special counsel Smith had dropped any indictments or anything like that. And other than that, I checked out. Um, so like these past 10 days have been so clear of all of that mess. I just focused on family and, um, I think uh I think I I put together like more time with my my kids than I have in a long time. Um 
we played so many video games, me and my oldest son, um, did played lots of board games and watched tons of cartoons and ate lots of great food, man. It was just great. It was just great to get out of it. And, you know, like in this, in this thing I'm doing, whatever this is where I go on and like research all this stuff and, and gather all this news and then present it on these shows and, and whatnot. I'm kind of like always riding these streams of news. Like I always feel like there's like these waves of, of, of news and I'm just surfing them and trying to find the best wave. And, uh, you know, it's like this constant, there's an entropy about it and there's this constant, constant movement with it. And I wake up and immediately think about whatever it was I was last reading about, um, or whatever news podcast I was like last listening to, you know, and, it took me about two days to break out of that cycle where my brain was constantly in that mode of consuming news. And then once I did, um, it just made more room for family time and, uh, man, it was really good. I, I just, I just really enjoyed it. And, um, I appreciate it. A lot of people sent me messages saying, where are you at? I missed you and whatnot. And I appreciate that. Uh, but it was definitely good for me and good for my family for me to take a holiday break. One thing we didn't get done though, is both my kids got bicycles for Christmas and my, my oldest one knows how to ride, but my youngest one, uh, this is his first bicycle and we haven't been able to find a helmet that fits his big head. (laughs) Um, uh, so we haven't been able to, he's, he's been riding the bicycle around inside. Um, well riding, um, but we, that's one, there's one thing left undone from the Christmas break, which is to take both my kids to, uh, there's a, there's a church parking lot nearby that I want to take them to and to get them both on their bikes and try and teach the three-year-old how to ride. Um, but we haven't been able to find him a, a decent helmet, um, or well, a, a helmet that fits his head. So that's one, that's one thing left undone that I got to, uh, I got to figure out bubble wrap. Yeah. Howard 76. Yeah. We could bubble wrap his head. Um, he's, he's pretty, he's pretty outgoing and adventurous and, uh, is kind of known for jumping on things and falling off things and climbing on stuff. So I feel like he needs a helmet. Cause I think once he, uh, gets going on the bike and gets the confidence and how to, uh, steer it and pedal it, I think that he's going to need a helmet. <laughs> um, uh, I don't think he's going to, I think he's, he's one of, he gets over his caution pretty quick. His older brother is very cautious about stuff. Um, and he takes a little bit more of a push to get, get going into things. He's, he's, he's a little more skeptical of stuff, but the young kid, he just goes, he's brave as can be. So, Anyway, I sincerely hope you guys also manage to disconnect and break free of everything and have some good quality time with your family and your friends and uh, enjoy enjoy the holidays. We all need that from time to time. I'm trying to decide still where I want to start this morning because there's, there's some late breaking news with the speakership stuff. I feel like I'm probably going to, uh, I'm going to ruffle some feathers today. Um, I've got, I've definitely got two topics that are going to ruffle some feathers and, uh, sorry about that, but that's how it's going to be. I think, um, I think what we should do is step back first. 
Yeah, I think I think what we'll do first is we'll step back um and talk about SBF. I want to go to Yeah, I think this makes sense. We'll save some of the more controversial stuff. Yeah, the speakership, yeah, the speakership is what I'm talking about. I'm going to ruffle some people's feathers on the speakership topic and on the uh Brunson case topic. But it is what it is, and uh, everybody's entitled to their opinion, and there's always a chance I'm wrong. But we'll get we'll get to it. First, I want to go back to uh, SBF, because I, I think that this is one of the most important things going on. And over the, while I was on break, or right after I started my break, SBF was extradited to the U.S., and he arrived in New York City, for a uh, for a hearing, and at that hearing, well, I'll just go over it because Inner City Press put on a short thread right here. Let's see where uh, Bankman Freed appeared in person. He had two lawyers with him. Judge Gabriel Gorenstein was the magistrate judge he was in front of. And commented on his counsel. Since then, uh, SBF has retained other counsel, I believe. Um, Judge Gorenstein, you are also charged with commodities fraud by promoting to trade traps. This is reporting from the courtroom. You are charged with securities fraud with false information about FTX.com's financial condition and also conspiracy to commit money laundering. You are also charged with violating campaign finance laws. Have you seen this indictment? It's very important to remember that it's not just the financial fraud he committed. He violated campaign finance fraud or finance laws. And a lot of people have been saying that he's going to get away with that. I don't think he is defense counsel. Yes. We waive the public reading. The indictment will be ready at a later date for bail. You must consider the weight of the evidence. This was a fraud of epic proportions. If that was the only test, attention would likely be appropriate, but he voluntarily consented to extradition. And this is kind of what I wanted to drill into is the subject of SBF being put basically on house arrest, his parents' house. And I saw some comments when this news broke that SBF got a sweetheart deal. He's he's going to be free. He's going to flee and whatnot. And I want people to take into account that SBF was in the Bahamas. And it seems there is suspicion that he and some others had plans to possibly try and flee to Dubai from the Bahamas or wherever he was. Yeah, Bahamas. Um, And he didn't do that. Or at least he got interrupted before he could. But while he was in prison there, he, he didn't fight the extradition. His lawyer tried to fight it, and he was like, no, no. Uh, I saw some reporting that um, he was getting upset with his lawyer in front of the judge because he wanted to get out and come to the U.S. because his the jail conditions were so bad. So he came to America. He allowed himself to be extradited. He didn't fight the extradition. And that counts for something in front of the judge. That counts for something because... This guy has a lot of money and he had a lot, has a lot of means. Um, and he could have paid some really high power lawyers 
to try and prevent him from being extradited to the U.S., and he didn't do that. I personally think that he wants to de- a deal. I think he wants to, like, tr- I think he's looking for the easiest, easiest path here. And um, I think the U.S. attorneys are appreciating that because they're going to play really, really hardball with him. Um, anyway, the judge is like, hey, you know, that counts for something that this guy didn't fight the extradition and voluntarily consented to extradition. The U S attorney Roos says if he had resisted, we would have opposed release, but his assets have diminished and this is a financial crime and he no longer works for FTX or Alameda. So risk to the community is a marginal consideration. We propose a restrictive bail package. We believe this is the highest ever pre-trial bond. That's our proposal. Judge Gorenstein says, go ahead. All right. U.S. Attorney Roos says a $250 million bond signed by defendant and his parents and a non-family member secured by the parents' home where he will live in Palo Alto, California. He could live um, the home for uh, purposes. He can live in the home for purpose of exercise, mental health, and substance abuse treatment. He can leave the home. That's a typo. He's able to leave the home for purpose of exercise, mental health treatment, or substance abuse treatment. Remember, this guy has a uh, a known drug issue. No financial transactions in excess of a thousand dollars without pre-approval of the government, except to pay legal fees, and he would be released today. Also, he could be required to turn himself in for pretrial services in the Northern District of California tomorrow by 10 a.m. I believe the defense has consented to this. The pretrial services would include st- installing GPS, so an ankle monitor. Defense counsel says, I'd like to emphasize my client voluntarily consented to come face, come here to face these charges in New York. Extradition can take months or years in the Bahamas. Bankman Freed is sitting with his arms crossed in front of him during this, wearing a suit with two marshals behind him. His parents are Stanford professors. We ask that you accept this release. Gorenstein says, under the Bail Reform Act, at this point, we have an indictment. A grand jury has found probable cause. We'll get to the two conspirators lately, uh, later, but they weren't mentioned right here. This individual has no prior criminal history of any time. Um, or strong tie, and he has strong ties to the country. His family lives here. There's no record of violence. He is a citizen. This is his first arrest. The defendant has achieved sufficient notoriety. It would be impossible. This is important. It would be impossible for SBF to continue financial di- transactions. You know that would be more of the crime he has committed without a drawing a, drawing attention because this guy is so notable and well known, and so are his crimes now. And his notoriety gets in the way of his ability to flee. His flight risk is severely reduced because he's known. Everybody knows who he is. He would be recognized. So I'm going to I'm going to permit release. He will surrender his passport. It has already been surrendered, actually. Home detention with local monitoring will be installed today. He must live in his parents' home in Palo Alto. No new business without pre-trial, pre-approval and pre-trial services. Etc. Etc. Now, if you go to, I'm going to skip this for now because that's really interesting too. If you go to right over here, that's not the one. Where is it? Right here. So this is his paperwork for all this. 
I wanted to point out his conditions of release. He has to submit to supervision and report to a supervisor. Um, he has to surrender his passport, which he's already done. He can't obtain any other travel documents. He must abide by the following restrictions, which are he can only be in the Northern District of California, and he can only be in the Southern District and Eastern District of New York for the purposes of court hearings. He can't go anywhere else. He can't possess weapons, of course, and participate in one of the following restrictions, which is home detention. He's restricted to his parents' home. And he also has monitoring. He has to submit to the following location monitoring technology, which includes this GPS uh, monitor and pretrial services supervising officer. And yeah. So I know that a lo- there was, I saw some people saying this is BS. He's getting this sweetheart treatment and all this. And, um, that this isn't fair and whatnot. It's the highest bond ever paid or is one of the U S attorney says he thinks it's the highest bond ever paid for a release. He's on strict conditions and uh house arrest. I don't think it's that sweet of a deal. I re- I really don't. And I also think it kind of makes sense. Like, I don't think that I, g- I guess I don't have it in me where I just like, I'm just like, girl, I want to see this person like, Cruelly punished. Like I wanted, like just I wanted to pay for his crimes, but I don't feel that. Yeah, I, I don't have a problem with this. I also you have to think about if he was serving jail time right now while waiting for trial, then if he got sentenced to some jail time after he's convicted, then these days would probably count towards that, right? So it's not like he's going to not get jail time. Like he could have, if he was in jail right now, those days are going to count towards his eventual sentence. So I, I don't, I don't really have a problem with this. I know a lot of people do, but I don't. Now the most interesting next thing that's going to happen in this case is January 3rd, tomorrow at 2 PM. There's a conference. Um, we'll see if any new developments come out of that. It may just, it may not be all that exciting of a conference, but I'll definitely be watching for news of it um, to see if we learn anything else. Because since he has come to the U.S., we have learned that his two business business partners, Caroline Ellison and Gary Wang, have turned on him and ratting have been ratting him out to the feds. Sean Joe, good morning over on Foxhole. He shouldn't be in the DC Gulag because his crimes weren't committed there. So there is no there's no pathway for him to end up in the DC jail because he he didn't commit his crimes there. He committed his crimes and the evidence of his crimes are taking place through the Southern District of New York because they're financial crimes. But since he's been here, we've learned that his business partners are ratting him out and they've taken a plea agreement. The SEC civil, this is from compound 248 on Twitter. They put this thread together. The SEC civil non-criminal complaint is built on their participation and gives us our first insider account of the FTX disaster. Remember that he is indicted by DOJ 
and that's criminal. But he's also got a complaint against him by the SEC, which is non-criminal, and the, uh, what is it, CTFC, um, which is non-criminal. Here's 12 key takeaways in this thread. One, it is what we thought. SBF lied. Wang built a backdoor to FTX for Alameda to sweep funds into it. Caroline ran Alameda, which was Sam's personal fund. Sam invested in real estate politicians and venture capital. And from this new filing here, but Bankman Freed and Wang improperly diverted customer assets to Alameda Research. Wang created and participated in creation of software code that allowed Alameda to divert FTX customer funds. Ellison, in turn, used the misappropriated FTX customer funds for Alameda's trading activity. And Bankman Freed used those customer funds to make undisclosed venture investments, lavish real estate purchases, and large political donations. In essence, Bankman Freed and Wang placed billions of dollars of FTX customer funds into Alameda. Bankman Freed then used Alameda as his personal piggy bank to buy luxury condominiums, support political campaigns, and make private investments, among other uses. Two, Sam told me to do it. Caroline says Sam directed her to take customer funds from FTX in exchange for made-up FTT shitcoin. Now, I need to explain something here. This is coming from them flipping. Caroline Ellison and Gary Wang have flipped on FTX or SBF, and they're spilling the beans to the Securities and Exchange Commission about how things work. That's where this is coming from. And if you don't know what FTT is, FTT was like basically loyalty points that they created. Um, they treated it as a coin, but it didn't exist. It's like your your bonus points at Starbucks or Chick-fil-A or something. And after you gather so many, you can use them on getting a free item. They did that, but they did that with their FTX crypto trading platform. But then they treated those FTT coins as if they were crypto and actually existed and have some sort of value, but they don't. And they inflated that value massively. And then they traded those things. It would be like you trading your Starbucks points and uh, or whatever. Your loyalty points or whatever you accrue, whatever app or business you go to. And then you trying to, and then you opening an exchange where you sell those things. Um, but in the end, they have no value. They're not actually real. They're just tokens. Um, in more than one sense of the word of token. So Caroline is throwing Sam under the bus on this subject here from this uh, filing beyond its line of credit with FTX Ellison at Bankman Freed's direction caused Alameda to borrow billions of dollars from third party lenders. Those loans were backed in significant part by Alameda's holdings of FTT an illiquid crypto asset security that was issued by FTX and provided to Alameda at no cost. 
Ellison, acting at the direction of Bankman Freed, engaged in automated purchases of FTT tokens on various platforms in order to increase the price of those tokens and inflate the values of value of Alameda's collateral, which allowed Alameda to borrow even more money from external lenders and increased risks risk to the lenders and to FTX investors and customers all in furtherance of this scheme. So imagine if um, you took your Starbucks points or whatever, whatever you want to think of, and then you somehow added them or sold them to, to your partner who told the bank that they had some kind of value and uh, deposited the, the, them into a bank account. And then you went to go loan more money from a different bank. And when you did that, you told that other bank, I have this much money in this account and I have all of these, all these tokens over here and they're valued at this according to this external appraiser. Like it just inflating there's, they don't actually have any value, but you're, you're, you're hedging them against each other and making it seem like they have a bunch of, bunch of value in order to inflate the overall value of your business. So you can get more money loaned to you and then you use that money to make more investments. And it's just this cycle that keeps on going. Not saying that's the perfect description of how this works, but it's good enough. May, 2022, when the shit hits the fan, despite already having borrowed billions and billions of FTX customer assets, by May, when crypto went bump in the night, Alameda, which Sam was running, couldn't fulfill its borrower, borrower um, obligations. So Sam ordered Caroline to take even more FTX customer money. When prices of crypto assets plummeted in May 2022, Alameda's lenders demanded repayment on billions of billions of dollars in loans. Despite the fact that Alameda had, by this point, already taken billions of dollars of FTX customer assets, it was unusable or unable to satisfy, to satisfy its own loan obligations. Bankman Freed, with defendant's knowledge, the defendant here would be Ellison, Caroline Ellison, directed FTX to divert billions more in customer assets to Alameda to ensure that Alameda maintained its lending relationships. And that money could continue to flow in from lenders and other investors. Ellison then used FTX's customer assets to pay Alameda's debts. Four, brazen multi-year scheme. The violations peaked in 2022, but began years ago from the start of FTX. This wasn't a recent accident. It was multi-year fraud, and it's in this filing here that from the start, contrary to what FTX investors and trading customers were told, Bankman Freed actively supported by the defendants in this case who have flipped on him, continually diverted FTX customer funds to Alameda, then used those funds to continue to grow his empire, using billions of dollars to make undisclosed private venture investments, political contributions, and real estate purchases. From the start of FTX operations in or around May 2019 until at least 2021, FTX customers deposited fiat currency, U.S. dollars, into bank accounts controlled by Alameda. Alameda did not segregate these customer funds, but instead commingled them. 
This multi-billion dollar liability was reflected in an internal account in the FTX database that was not tied to Alameda, but was instead called fiat at FTX.com. <laughs> Characterizing the amount of customer funds sent to Alameda as an internal FTX account had the effect of concealing Alameda's liability and FTX's internal system. Alameda tracked this liability as a loan, but did not specify that the loan was from FTX. Number five, Sam and Gary own 100% of Alameda. Anytime someone says Alameda, just substitute Sam because it's Sam and Gary here. And Gary has flipped on Sam. Sam owns 90% of Alameda, Alameda and Gary owns 10%. Alameda has no clients. All that money is Sam and Gary stolen fair and square. Bangman Freed and Wayne co-owned it, co-owned or co-founded Alameda in or around October 2017 and prior to Alameda filing bankruptcy, had been its sole equity owners. Sam was always in control, even after naming Caroline and Sam Trabuco as co-CEOs of Alameda in 2021, Sam remained in absolute control. He frequently communicated with Alameda peeps and had full access to its books and records. Seven, Alameda was exempted from FTX's risk management process. As has been widely discussed, FTX had a decent risk engine. It just didn't apply it to its biggest user, Sam Bankman-Fried himself. At least Sam posted some high-quality coins, though, as collateral, which, remember, those are those same coins that don't exist. They're not real, but he posted them as collateral. <laughs> you see how this scheme is working? <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's, it's astounding, guys. It's absolutely astounding how he did this. Okay, let me see if I want to read this right here. I'll skip that. Sam created Alameda's deal and took action to hurt FTX. Over $8 billion of customer funds were wired by customers directly to Alameda rather than FTX. That's $8 billion. This was a de facto loan. Sam insured Alameda did not have to pay FTX interest on that money. In other words, Sam insured he himself did not have to pay interest on that money. Alameda's portion, which amounted to more than 8 billion FTX customer assets that had been deposited into Alameda controlled bank accounts was initially moved to a different account in the FTX database. However, this change caused FTX's internal systems to automatically charge Alameda interest on the more than $8 billion liability. Bankman free directed that Alameda liability be moved to an account that would not be charged interest. And then here's the securities fraud among the many frauds, Sam and crew committed with security fraud. The SEC frowns on poorly written footnotes. Imagine how it treats you lying to would-be investors about your fraud to raise fresh equity. It's fraud squared or something. Magic, mon magic money in a box was a security. Sam coins, shit coins, Web3 tokens, magic beans, call them what you want, but they're entirely fabri fabricated from dreams. And Sam lied about them. A lot. And they manipulated the price of FTT. That'd be that token that he made up. And the SEC declares it a security. 
Defendant and Bankman-Fried valued the FTX-affiliated tokens at trading prices, but the collateral deposited by Alameda was not worth the value assigned to it. Alameda and FTX collectively owned the majority of these tokens, and only a small portion of the FTX-affiliated tokens were in circulation. Alameda programmed its automated trading tools, or bots, to conduct trades and execute transactions to purchase FTT at specific prices. On more than one occasion, Alameda and Ellison, at Bankman-Fried's direction, actively engaged in the trading of FTT with the goal of supporting the price of the tokens. On these occasions, Alameda adjusted the trading parameters of its trading bots in order to support the price of FTT. Quick aside here, unrelated to FTX, if tokens are securities, many, many people broke the law. Entrepreneurs, promoters, and yikes, prominent venture capitalists. I'd watch out here. We may see venture capitalists in handcuffs. SBF is a... He's just the first. I think there's more people doing what SBF was doing. I think we're going to learn there's more people who who were doing what he was doing... And there's going to be more indictments like his. They may not be as big as what he's done. They may not have been as prolific as him, but I don't think he's the only one who's been engaging in this type of activity. If you have your fund borrow customer brokerage assets, then lend those from your fund to yourself, but you don't document the loan. Is it even a loan? Does that just doesn't that just make it money laundering? Say it with me now, Rico. This really does seem like it's a Rico case. It hasn't been indicted as such, but it really seems like a Rico case. FTX customers withdrew five billion in one day. In one day. At the same time, Bankman-Fried sought emergency funding from other investors, including U.S. investors, to cover a shortfall at FTX of approximately $8 billion. That's the SEC civil complaint summary. The criminal complaints will have more. The most fascinating part to me is the implications beyond FTX's shores. If you enjoyed, please like and follow. That was a good thread and breakdown of this new filing. And he's right. This is just from the SEC, which is the non-criminal complaint. And the fact that these two guys, Caroline Ellison and Gary Wang, have turned on him is huge. And on December 19th, defendants Ellison and Wang waived the indictment and consented to the filing of a superseding information and pleaded guilty to each of the counts with which they were charged. So they didn't plead guilty and got got like this sweetheart deal where they like pled they pled to three out of five charges or something. They pled guilty as charged. At the times their pleas were entered, the court granted the government's application that the filings and transcripts of the plea allocations would be temporarily sealed and docketing delayed until such a time as Bankman-Fried was extradited. 
that happened and these were unsealed. These guilty pleas. The government now requests that the pleas include certain limitations, certain limited redactions upon unsealing. And last thing on this, well, potentially. A couple curious things about what Sam did here. One, Securities and Exchange Commission has alleged that Sam engaged in orchestrated fraud for years. Messy bookkeeping, overlapping, and mixed finances, co-mingling of funds, etc. There was a couple things in here that are kind of weird, though. This year, Bankman Fried and his co-founder Wang borrowed $546 million in promissory notes from Alameda to, to fund a purchase of Robinhood stock, court documents show. Later, Alameda took out a loan and pledged those same shares as collateral. Now... Bankman Freed is stuck in a four-way legal battle for ownership of that half a billion stake in Robinhood. Then consider a separate SEC complaint that alleged FTX customers were told to wire money to an obscure fake electronics retailer with a website full of misspelled words and unusually priced items. This is this is some of the weird stuff about FTX and I I don't know if like these were just like because these people were on drugs and so they they did all this weird stuff um but this this one right here just so bizarre this website had items that were misspelled such as 11 itch iPad right here. One uh, iPad 11 itch, for example, was listed as well as a mobile device on sale for $899. But the normal price of those items was 410. And this was at a website that was called North dimension. So what what is this that this North Dimension? What is it? What role did this website play that has all these that seems to be not well set up and has all these overpriced items and these misspellings? What what's going on here? Is this another element of money laundering here? It's really weird. FTX execs hit eight billion in liabilities. In a customer account that Bankman Freed referred to, and this is a diff, this is different. This is a customer account that Bankman Freed referred to as our Korean for our Korean friends account. A lawsuit from the CFTC alleges the whole notion of where did the money go seems to be getting more muddled by the day. There's a chance that those who end up in the most financial pain will be everyday investors who, like some institutional investors, trusted their funds to FTX. This is from this Business Insider article. I spoke with a California father of three who lost access to $120,000 as FTX collapsed. In a phone call, he told me he'd planned to use those funds for his children's college education. A bear market is one thing, but because that's something you can stomach, as a, but that's something you can stomach as a veteran investor. But here... There's malice and thievery, which is much harder to handle. If it turns out that Bankman Freed is locked up in jail and all the lenders and big creditors get taken care of, but retail customers get left empty, 
then that doesn't do much for people like this guy who lost 120000 And there's another, I don't, I didn't pull it up for this show, but there's another weird thing with FTX where they bought a tiny bank that had like three employees and didn't do any international business. I have it somewhere in my bookmarks. I don't, I don't remember where I'm not going to go looking for it. Uh, but it's like this bizarre purchase of this bank that had, it that had like, Two, I think it had like one, is he, it's three or less uh, branches, tiny bank. It may have just had one location, this tiny bank, and they bought it for way more than it was worth and then changed it to be, to describe itself as being this international bank with millions and of millions, experience in handling millions of dollars of international loans and all this stuff. And this is really weird. Like, why did they make this purchase? I think there's a lot more going on with, with SBF than we've been made aware yet. I think there's a lot, I think there's a lot more going on. And I've seen some people like, you know, there's all the jokes about he, he's, he's going to get, Arkansas-ed, uh, um, and I, I, yeah, I kind of wonder about that. Cause, uh, he, you almost think he would be safer in jail, um, than he, than he is living at his parents' home, you know? Um, I think there's something to that. Um, it's, there's a lot of weird stuff going on here. A lot. All right. We have some Durham news. So I check this website pretty often. And um, I was checking, like I said, at the beginning of the show, I had been checking, like, the only time I, I checked all my news feeds while I was on my break was to see if there was a Durham indictment. And... um one place I didn't check was here to see if his expenditures had been released. Um, or if I did check here, I've forgotten. Um, and we got a new one. So what goes on here is that he has to release like for the special counsel's office. He has to post the expenditures, um, of the past two quarters. So six months of expenditures. And these have been all their postings right here. So I'll go ahead and open all of them up and show you that they're really short articles or statements that just show how much money they spent. So from the beginning of the special counsel's office, October of 19, October 19th, 2020, the first six months they spent 934,000 and then they spent 1.8 million. Well, basically 1.9 million. And then $1.6 And then this most recent one, which would include the two trials, right? Or this is April 1st through September 30th. So almost includes both trials. It includes the, the prep for the Danchenko trial. $2 million, Okay. So Durham spending has increased each time, right? $1 million, 1.8, 1.9, 1.9. 
1.62. And you would expect that. You would expect that it would. And it lists some some itemization. It's not fully itemized, but it lists some itemization, like a million dollars for IC appropriations, intelligence community, was expended on salaries and benefits, including 100000 for SEO employees and 936000 for re, in reimbursables for DOJ employees and then travel and transportation and then contractual services and um, all that kind of stuff. It gives you that much information. It doesn't go into deep into specifics, but it gives you some idea of what they were spending this money on. I'm pretty sure somewhere in here it tells you what Durham's salary is, which is locked in. Um, DOJ component expenses that support the SCO were tracked, and they came out to 346000 There is some stuff you can get from Renews. I thought about spreadsheeting these to track them. I thought about making a spread. I might do it. Uh, I've been thinking about making a spreadsheet with these notes right here that show um, – what it's being spent on and putting it into a spreadsheet so we can graph over time where the spending is going and noticing like what the trends are. Um, there's only, it'd be only four inputs on each one. So you don't, it's not going to give you a whole bunch, but it gives you a little bit of insight. I might still do it. Um, but what really struck me about this and these expenditures and it doesn't include the Danchenko trial, but it includes the lead up to the Danchenko trial. What I thought about with these is that if you total these up, it comes out to six and a half million. So, so far, um, or just before the Danchenko trial, Durham, the Durham Special Counsel's Office has cost taxpayers six and a half million dollars. So I thought I'd put it in perspective a little bit and ask you guys, would you spend six and a half million dollars to expose all that Durham has over the past two years? Would you spend six and a half million dollars to break the attorney client privilege over 1500 documents sent between Hillary, her campaign, Mark Elias, Fusion GPS? Would you spend six and a half million dollars to put the FBI on trial like Durham did during the Danchenko trial? Would you spend six and a half million dollars to put Chuck Dolan, longtime Clinton crony, on the witness stand? Would you spend six and a half million dollars to put the FISA abuse into federal record in a courtroom? Would you spend six and a half million dollars to forever destroy the Alpha Bank hoax? Would you spend six and a half million dollars to forever destroy the Steele dossier hoax? I would spend I would spend a hundred times that much money. <laughs> I would I would I would spend a hundred times that much money. Six and a half six and a half million dollars is 
I mean, I mean, that is that is a bargain. That is an absolute bargain. And and most people are thinking, or not most, but a lot of people are like, ah, Durham's nothing burger. Nothing, nothing nothing's gonna happen from it. He hasn't accomplished anything. He didn't get any convictions. So therefore it's a waste. But that's not what this is. This is six and a half million dollars towards gathering all the evidence and gathering the witness testimony, getting the documents you need, busting attorney-client privilege, putting people on the witness stand, putting people in front of grand juries. This is $6.5 million to build a RICO case. Um, Durham is pretty thrifty. Durham is pretty damn thrifty. And I I just think I think this this is a this is an absolute bargain. And I and if another thing about this that stood out to me is that we were told after Danchenko trial, you remember immediately after Danchenko trial, we were told by a bunch of conservative incorporated media outlets and influencers, and also a bunch of mainstream media clowns. In their outlets, we were immediately told after Danchenko that Durham was over, that he was going to be putting in his final report before the end of the year, before Republicans took over the House. He was going to be filing his 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 final report and giving it to Garland and shutting down the SCO. That hasn't happened, has it? There's no. It's Jan- it's January 2nd now, right? There's no final report here. So I, I don't think that's going to happen. Now, I'm not going to tell you that I, I... I'm not sure that Durham is going to be the special counsel for years and years into the future... It's possible that Durham hands it off, right? It's possible that that Durham hands it over to someone else at some point and retires from this. But I don't think he'll do that. I'm 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 kind of like open to that being a possibility though. That that Durham may inform Garland I need to hand off my special counsel duties to somewhere someone else for whatever reasons. And that could happen. That wouldn't bother me. I just think it would be an evolution of what is what he's doing. But I think this is awesome. And I read into these financials that, well, actually, let me say this. We were talking about last time on Defected, um, which if you missed it, uh, Burning Bright and I did an episode of Defected last night. And, uh, it's pretty good. And we had, we had a couple good discussions in it. And, um, we talked about Durham. we did kind of a year in review a little bit. We looked back to this past year and then looked forward to what we think was coming. And, uh, one of the things we talked about with on the subject of Durham was how media and influencers set up this construct where 
the conviction is the only goal. So if there is no conviction of Sussman or Danchenko, then that must mean Durham failed. Or if within two years Durham doesn't indict McCabe or somebody like that, then it must be failed. It must be a failure. And it's like this fault. It's like this straw man in a way that's put up there. It's, it's this false objective. And it's not that that wouldn't be a good thing. We wouldn't celebrate it, but it's that they make that the only thing. So they make that the only thing that should be, that can be considered a win. And then if that doesn't happen, then nothing else matters. And it, the whole thing must be a failure instead of looking at what else was accomplished. And we talked about like mostly on defected. We usually try and draw back and take like this macro view of stuff. But I explained last night that, you know, it's, it's those of us who focus on the details of what Don Durham is doing that see how he is building towards something. It's, it's those of us who get into the details of the filings and track these cases. When you do that, you start seeing that he's building towards something that is much, much bigger than getting a lowly lawyer like Sussman three years of probation on a conviction for one count of lying to the FBI. You know, like that, it's a point I've made before that how much of a win is it if Sussman gets three years of probation compared to how much of a win is it if Hillary Clinton can no longer hide behind attorney-client privilege? The attorney-client privilege opens it up for you to be able to indict Mark Elias. Mark Elias might be the, the one of the slimiest, most difficult-to-catch swamp creatures out there. If you want to charge Mark Elias for his role in Spygate, You need to have every you need to have every single I dotted and T crossed on every document that you come up with. And you need to have as many documents and as many communications as possible between him and everybody else involved in the conspiracies and in the crimes. But to get those things, you got to get people on the witness stand, you got to get access to emails and um, all sorts of things. And you got to break down attorney client privilege and everything that Mark Elias does is going to be attorney client privilege because he's a freaking lawyer. So everything, every communication he has, he's going to assert attorney client privilege over it. So when you, the point I was making was like, you see these details and you see these smaller wins and moves and the things that he's building. And then you pull back and you're like, Oh, the, tr Durham isn't building towards a conviction of Sussman or Danchenko at all. He's building towards something much, much bigger. And then you add in him hiring in August a lawyer that specializes in RICO cases. And you're like, oh, 
now, now this is making sense. Now this is starting to make sense why he's going about the way he is. And so it's like one of those things where you focus on or you dig down into the details and find those things. And then you draw back and see the big picture. And you're like, okay, yep. Yep. This actually isn't about convicting a lawyer and getting a three years or so probation and a fine. Cause that's all that would happen with Sussman or, or Danchenko. If they got convicted for one count of lying, they would just get three years probation and a fine. And Bernie Bright made the point that, you know, people that people that are on the other side of this, Mark Elias, Glenn Simpson, Christopher Steele, all those others that are on the opposite side, all the, the, the people involved in the swamps conspiracy against Trump. Their perspective on this is crap. We would have preferred Danchenko be our sacrifice here. <laughs> they wouldn't care if Danchenko got got convicted. They would have celebrated that too because they could have been like, "Yeah, we'll just we'll just let him take the blame for all this. We'll sacrifice that pawn." It's just a matter. It's just a matter of perspective, and um, there's a, there's some things that you know I put forth or that I think are going to happen. Um, that like you know on a scale, I have some confidence about, and some of those things, my confidence level is about a five or six or something. But Dur- Durham and what Durham is doing is one of those things where my confidence is a nine or a 10 because it doesn't make sense. What Dur- what Durham is doing and what he has done, it doesn't make sense unless he's building towards a Rico case. It, do- it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And Durham knows how Durham knows how to take down criminal empires. He's done it before. And Durham knows how to take on the FBI. He's done it before. So anyway, six point five mil. I think that's a steal. All right. Y'all are, I see chat really bringing up two topics over and over again. And that's okay. That's fine. I see y'all bringing up Brunson and bringing up McCarthy, <laughs> which are definitely going to be the spiciest topics I talked about this morning. Uh, so, yeah, let's, um, what time is it? 1030. Okay. Let's, let's get into it. Let's get into it. Well, ah. 
I don't know. Maybe I should uh, save it for the break. Okay. This this is what I want to do. Because my coffee cup's empty. Or just about empty. Yeah. Yeah, this is what I want to do. I want to take a short intermission. I want to take a short intermission. And then when I come back, we're going to talk about McCarthy and the speakership and all of that. Um, Cause I think that's, I think that's the best way to go about this. Yeah. So let's, and talk about Brunson. So, Let's um let's take a short intermission, three minutes, and then we'll come back and talk about those two topics. All right. All right, be right back.
Oops. All right, it was a little bit more than three minutes. Getting a little bit cold down here in the basement. Put my old man sweater back on. All right. Folks, thanks for being here this morning with me. If you are interested in supporting the show, the links to do that are in the description over here on Rumble or my link tree. Buymeacoffee.com slash just human is the best way. Well, besides just liking the show, hitting the plus button and sharing the show, that's number one. Uh, but number two would be buymeacoffee.com slash just human or a subscription to justhuman.substack.com. There's also my merch store, red, white, and bourbon45.com and bensonhoneyfarms.com and use rep code just human. Uh, those are all, all great ways to support the show. Or you can do what R.L. Skeeter just did and give me a big rumble rant. Thank you very much, R.L. Skeeter. Um, yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy to be back. Um, I didn't actually realize how much I needed a break until I was about three or four days deep into my break and was like, oh, yeah, this is. I definitely needed to do this. I didn't realize how. I think it wasn't I was worn out. I think I was just saturated um, is more is a better description of what was going on. But, yeah, thank you very much, R.L. Skeeter. That's very generous of you, and I really appreciate it. Um, okay. Y'all want to do Brunson first or McCarthy first? Kind of think. I kind of think we should do Brunson first and end on McCarthy because the speaker thing is going to, uh, there could be some more developments by then. Um, Yeah, I think I kind of think we should do Brunson first. All right. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to do Brunson first. Now, I've talked about the Brunson case before, and uh, I've caught a lot of flack. A lot of flack for my take on the Brunson case. Um. I, I am, well, y'all know you watch my show. Y'all know how positive I am and y'all know, y'all know how, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty open to being accused of being a, uh, um, as someone putting out hopium, even though I don't think I put out hopium, but on the Brunson case, I th- I think this is a pretty classic piece of of hopium that's being peddled to us and it's not that i disagree with you know what they're trying to do or um that i think they're wrong uh necessarily in a lot of things um 
but I just think that this, I think that this, uh, this Brunson case is ill-conceived and ill-fated. And over on Uncover DC, I think Tracy Beans, yeah, it's Tracy Beans and Adam Carter wrote this article here. And it does a really good job of breaking down why this Brunson case is not what it's being made out to be. Also, they quoted me in it which is pretty nice. But even if they hadn't quoted me in it, this is still a really good article and I'm just going to present it to you and try and have an open mind about it because you know, there's, well, I'll just, I'll just go ahead. I'll just go ahead and, and present it to you. Um, this column, they start out and they say, and it's, I kind of, I really empathize with this cause I feel like, I feel the same way. This column isn't going to earn anyone money. To the contrary, many of you will likely hate us for writing it. But the truth is the truth. And the purpose is not to create division or call out other conservative influencers. Simply because we have differing opinions. We have all spent years watching blatant government corruption. Constitutional rights being trampled and elections stolen all with no one being held accountable. Understandably, there are many who are frightened, confused, and feeling desperate after witnessing all of this. They are hoping for a Hail Mary to come flying and that will restore the country to the Constitutional Republic with equal justice under the law that she was meant to be. And in their desperation, they are prone to cling to whatever appears promising that'll make it happen. Sadly, there are people out there who will exploit, profit from, or simply grift off that desperation by, by filling the need with false hope or hopium. It appears, unfortunately, that Brunson v. Alma S. Adams et al., also known as the Brunson case pending before the U S Supreme court is just an example of this. Now where the case really stands first, we need to dispel some misunderstandings about the status of this case. It is not scheduled for a hearing before SCOTUS. So far, it is simply a petition of a writ of certiori that's been scheduled for conference. All that require all that requires is filling out an online application and paying a filing fee. Constitutional attorney Robert Barnes, a member of the Supreme Court bar who has filed countless petitions for cert and made oral arguments in front of SCOTUS a number of times. Explain the process for filing a petition for writ and how the petition is considered by the SCOTUS justices and law clerks on a recent live stream with Viva Frey or Fry, who I like a lot more than I like Barnes, even though I like Barnes. Let's see if this will play. I will skip this ad. Yes, I will skip this ad.
the Supreme Court petition that will be filed uh, tomorrow, the petition for cert, which is basically a request for the U.S. Supreme Court to hear a case. Uh, the way that works is we file our petition for cert. The government has a period of time to respond to it. Sometimes they waive response. Sometimes they don't. If they waive response, that ends it, and it goes to the uh, pan- it goes to the panel on a set date for them to vote on it. The uh, it gets circulated by all of the justices. You file these little cert petitions. I have a bunch of them sitting right around here, actually. Um, and you have to uh, you have to pay a bunch of money for a specialized printer uh, to be able to file it correctly. Uh, I do that so because there's all these specific particular rules to the Supreme Court. Even in a digital era, and the cert get petition gets filed digitally, the U.S. Supreme Court still prefer to read them physically. So they want enough copies for themselves and their clerks. And they claim, every justice claims they read every single cert petition. Some of us aren't so confident that that's always the case, or their definition of reading might be a little liberal. Uh, but what often does happen is at least a clerk, sometimes several clerks, do in fact read it. And the the ones that get their attention are ones that involve big corporations or the government, sadly, frankly, when the government's petitioning, not when the government's a defendant. But uh, it's a great opportunity to educate the clerks and educate the court. So I, oft, I, I, I take any case I can uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court for those purposes, knowing every single petition is a long shot. They reject, though, I think some, I think it's less than 1% currently, uh, is, is the uh, acceptance rate. And especially once you factor out government requests, big corporate requests, things of that nature, you're, 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 you're dealing with a thousand to one long shot frequently. The Supreme Court petition. So, so Barnes is saying, I view all this stuff as basically having, even the ones I file as having no chance at all or having a 1% chance. It's a one shot in a million. Like going in, this is the this is his attitude towards it. That basically no chance this gets in. I'm gonna give it the best shot I can and try and educate the attorneys around it and go to try and get them to take it. But I go you go in with the attitude of this probably isn't gonna get accepted. Like one less than one percent are gonna get accepted. Back to the article. A conference is where the SCOTUS justices meet and vote on cases they will grant cert, with four needing to vote yes to accept the case and schedule for oral arguments. Here's the order list that came out of a recent conference. The justices considered 158 petitions for cert. They denied 157 and took one. And for a couple of the denials, they told the clerk of the court effectively quote, tell this idiot to stop bothering us with this nonsense. Don't accept any more petitions from this guy. You can love it or hate it guys, but that's just reality. Think, think about that. Think about this last conference. There were 158 petitions for cert and SCOTUS denied all of all of them, but one. As Barnes noted above, every justice claims they read every single petition for cert filed with the court. But that claim is very much in doubt. SCOTUS justices employ clerks who read and vet all the petitions ahead of time. The clerks are very familiar with the judicial philosophy of the justice they work for and what legal arguments they would be interested in discussing. It is believed 
based on what court considers uh, court insiders have described about the inner workings of the court. The only ones with merit are ever passed along and briefed by the clerk to the justice himself themselves. Justice simply justices simply don't have time to read each and every one of the thousands of petitions that get filed with SCOTUS every year. Further, as independent journalist and podcaster Just Human noted on True Social, quote, only 20 to 25 percent of the petitions distributed for a given conference are actually discussed. Much more granted. I remember posting this. <laughs> the Brunson case was distributed for conferences at SCOTUS on 1416. That's when the conference is going to be, is 1-6-2023. And like every other writ of cert that is docketed. Does this mean the court will discuss each petition distributed during their conference? Absolutely not. I would estimate that at best, only 20 to 25% of the petitions distributed for a given conference are actually discussed during that conference, and few, if any, of those discussed are granted. Those which aren't discussed become automatically denied. And that quote is from an article. You can see I have this as one of two. That quote is from an article that is linked in the second post uh, here. And you guys may remember that a big, big deal was made across many social media accounts um, and various media outlets about this Brunson case being scheduled for being distributed distributed at con- conference. And everybody, oh, this is huge. They're gonna they accepted it. Scotus is going to hear the case. And no, that's not what it meant. That's not what it meant. The other 75 to 80 percent of petitions are denied and discarded, likely without the justices ever reading them or even being aware they exist. Distributed for conference at the Supreme Court of the United States. And ah, there you go. There you go. I just I just realized that this is the article right here quoted from uh, my second post here. This is it. A lot has been made out of the Brunson brothers interaction with the clerk of square. So this is this is one thing. This is one section of what has been made of the Brunson case so far and where it's where it's currently at. That's one piece of it, what it means that it was scheduled for conference, okay? Now, this next part is about the reporting on what has happened with the interaction with the clerk of SCOTUS after they initially filed their petition for cert. As detailed on Brunson's own website, quote, the clerk of the SCOTUS calls Rayland, again, one of the Brunson brothers. She asks, quote, how are you doing on your revision of the writ with the additional information that we need? Raylan said, we're working on it as we speak. She said, how soon can we get it? And Raylan said, right away. There's September 23rd, petition for writ of cert received. September 28th, a phone call from SCOTUS, where the clerk of SCOTUS calls Raylan, requesting for a revision of the petition. October 17th, a second phone call from SCOTUS where the clerk of SCOTUS again calls Reagan Rayland and asks, how are you doing? And that section we just read three days later, later the revised petition is shipped to SCOTUS and October 24th, the petition is docketed. The clerk of the court tells Rayland that they have everything they need. The U S attorneys have until November 23rd 
to respond, showing why the Supreme Court of the United States should not move on this case. Some have interpreted this to mean the justices are eager to hear this case and proactively reaching out through the clerk to get it in front of them as quickly as possible. In our opinion, given how we know how the court operates, that interpretation makes little sense. First, as anyone who has watched a Senate confirmation since the Robert Bork nomination hearings understands, justices and SCOTUS nominees go out of their way to not appear to prejudge cases. Justices do not, at least publicly, proactively reach out to potential litigants seeking cases to be brought they wish to consider. And they certainly aren't going to make a public record of it by reaching out through the clerk of the court. In the event the justices do, justices do wish to have a matter brought before them they believe needs to be addressed, they do so by publicly signaling it in their written opinions, majority, concurrence, and or dissenting, as Justice Thomas recently did in a concurring statement related to Section 2, 230, ironically as part of a denial for a petition for writ of cert. Second, As Barnes talked about in the same recent live stream and coincidentally cites our own Tracy Beans, the people behind the Brunson petition have misinterpreted the actions of the clerk. Barnes explains SCOTUS is, quote, the best court in America when it comes to assisting pro se litigants, i.e. individuals who represent themselves in court rather than through an attorney, translated from Latin as advocating on one's own behalf in filing petitions. So the proactive actions by the clerk in this case are simply in keeping with the court's usual interactions with nearly all pro se litigants. SCOTUS has not done anything out of the norm with this case. It's just being marketed better. Let's see if we can play this clip. Can you tell, can you give us the three a two-minute, 20-second rundown on Brunson that I will clip and put to Twitter tomorrow. So Brunson is not a serious case. It's brought by some pro se litigants uh, who want, you know, everybody tossed out for not keeping their oath about the 2020 election in Congress. So it's a politically, rhetorically effective suit. Legally, it's a meritless suit. It got dismissed at every single stage, and the people surrounding the suit have falsely propagated it and mis- deliberately, either deliberately or because they don't understand how the Supreme Court operates, uh, misinterpreted the Supreme Court's actions. The Supreme Court did not request the case. The Supreme Court has not greenlit the case. The court, the Supreme Court has done nothing it doesn't do in every case. The Supreme Court, to its credit, is very uh, generous with its time about helping people file a petition in the right way, file it on the right time, file it in the right format, particularly pro se litigants like this. They're the best court in America by a long mile at helping the little guy properly get his petition before the U.S. Supreme Court. Great credit to the Supreme Court and its personnel on that side of the aisle. These folks are trying to interpret that as Supreme Court specially interested in the case. Supreme Court's going to take it. Supreme Court's going to handle it. And here's where you can donate now to donate for what? You don't have any lawyers. You don't have any costs. You haven't suffered any financial injury. What exactly is uh, the money for? As Tracy Beans pointed out uh, uh, herself, the it's like hmm that this is a it is a case that's useless. 
And the reason why I'm hostile to it, I mostly ignore it. I get emails, texts, notes, and comments every single day from people who have been misled about this case. They think it's a serious case. They think it's a sincere case. They think it's a legally credible case. They think the U.S. Supreme Court has expressed special interest in it. None of that is true. Every case, the clerks are very solicitous about helping you process your cert petition when you're pro se especially. Every case goes to a conference vote. They filed their cert petition. The government thinks there's no chance because they, they know there's no chance the case gets taken, so they didn't even reply. If the court wants, thinks they're even possibly thinking about taking the case, they request the government to reply. They didn't. They've already scheduled it for a conference where it will be rejected, guaranteed. There's very few times I guarantee anything. I guarantee you the U.S. Supreme Court will reject this case. This case has no chance. It, it Frankly, from a legal perspective, it has no merit. It, was, it, it had no chance ever of being accepted. These are some pro se litigants who have done a good job raising a lot of money, misleading lots of people. And my problem with it is when it gets rejected, a lot of ordinary people, who, who some of whom help give money to these folks, will feel, oh, the legal system's a waste of time. Don't get involved. Don't support it. It's not worthwhile. Uh, because the because the folks around these folks raising money have misled everybody about what's taking place and what's happened. The Brunton case is a nothing burger. Big, fat, nothing burger. That might have been more than two minutes and 20 seconds. We'll see when I cut it up for tomorrow. That clip right there is the most I have ever agreed with Barnes and the most I have like ever related to him because guys, I've been getting messages every single day about the Brunson case every day in email, in comments, in tweets, on telegram, on true social, on rumble, in tons of messages about this Brunson case. And I sincerely empathize. I sincerely empathize. I don't want to make anybody feel bad because they've learned of this case and they have some kind of hope in it. And I definitely don't want to make anybody feel bad because they feel that some wrong has been committed in our country and they want to have it righted. I do too. We concur on that. But this ain't it. This is not it. And, and I'm and I'm sorry to say that. I wish I could tell you that this was it. I, sin, I sincerely, I wish I could tell you that this case was the case. That this case was awesome. And that there's no way SCOTUS wouldn't take it. And there's no way that they are going to rule against it. This is the our best chance. Like, I wish I could tell you all that. But if I did, I would be lying to you. The truth is, is this is not a good case. And it has no chance. And there's a lot of red flags about it. There's a lot of red flags that make me think it's disingenuously offered. And the only reason that I, I give the topic of this case any attention at all is because every single day I get messages about it. 
Um, look, it really sucks that there are people who will take advantage of the time period we're in right now and they will prey on everybody's hopes and fears and they will lie and misrepresent to you um, things that are going on. Um, some of them do it for nefarious purposes and I'm not alleging, alleging that here, but it is a reality of the time period that we're, we're in right now um, that there are people who don't just grift off of things like this, but they try on purpose to get your hopes up so that they can then smash your hopes afterward and bring you down into an even more depressed place. And I'm not saying that's what's going on here, like intentionally, but I am saying that that is what will happen. Because there's a lot of people who are trying to get your hopes up for this case. And they know that this case is going nowhere. And I'm concerned about people in the community who are investing so much hope in this case. You're going to be very disappointed. They're taking it they're taking advantage of you. Uh, Rumble rant from Sammy the Squirrel. Thank you very much, sir. Justice Thomas has said Scotus is waiting for the right case to come before them. This ain't it. Lady Q says these people were and are playing on emotions. They are. That's right. Now, Barnes, I I can't believe how much I agree with Barnes in that clip. He is spot on, guys. He is spot on. Back to the article. Barnes dispels another myth about the Brunson petition in the same clip above. As noted on both the SCOTUS docket and Brunson website, the Department of Justice waived its right to respond to the petition. People hit me with this, guys, when this happened, and I told them that's because it isn't worthy of their time. They didn't waive their right to respond because they didn't know what to say. It's such a brilliant case. They're scared of it which I saw some people literally make that case. So I saw some media people try and say that DOJ is scrambling. They don't know how to respond to it. This case is so brilliant. They're scared of it. No, they looked at it and said, this isn't worthy of our time. It's going nowhere. Back to the article. Somehow this is being spun by proponents as a good sign for the petition. The lawsuit is so solid that DOJ is simply unable to mount any kind of defense against it. Does that actually make sense to anyone? The highly politicized Merrick Garland DOJ is just going to throw its hands up and allow SCOTUS to unilaterally remove the entire Democrat Party power base from elected federal office without so much as making an argument and do and do so in a case that has been dismissed with ease at every level below SCOTUS. Does that really make sense to anyone? It's absurd. Almost beyond the point of comprehension. It is nonsense. It's also noted by Barnes, the only reason that would happen is because the DOJ does not even feel the need to respond because the lawsuit has no merit whatsoever. If the court thought there was any chance, any chance at all, that the justices would vote to hear the case, 
they would reach out and request a response from the DOJ. The fact that neither the DOJ nor the court thought a response was necessary is the clearest sign that this case is going nowhere. Now, the merits of the case. We have read the lawsuit filed by the Brunson brothers. In our honest opinion, it does not seem to have any basis in constitutional law. Frankly speaking, as found by the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals in their dismissal, it's frivolous. The truth is, the only reason this case got to the stage of a petition for writ of cert with SCOTUS this quickly is because it completely lacks merit. You only need to think back to your fourth grade civics class to understand why it lacks merit. Now, we will be, we will be the first to admit our constitutional processes are not functioning as our founders intended. We are only speaking to how the system was designed to function. Under our system of separation of powers and checks and balances, the legislative branch, Congress, is the only one with the power to remove sitting members of the other two branches or sitting members of Congress itself. The founders entrusted this power solely to Congress because it is the political branch and the most accountable to the people. In theory, If Congress were to abuse its authority and remove a member of the other two branches against the will of the people, those members could be voted out of office in short order. Hence, the people would have the remedy to correct the imbalance and hold the ultimate check on power. For that reason alone, this case is dead on arrival at SCOTUS. Even if the case had merit, On the other issues presented in the lawsuit, SCOTUS does not have the power to grant the remedy being sought. Therefore, there is nothing for the justices to rule on. They can't do anything about it. And if you really think it through, there's a very good reason for that. As Tracy Beans explained in a recent voice voice memo thread on Telegram, what the ramifications would be if SCOTUS actually did have this power. In a hypothetical scenario she gives at the 7 minute 30 mark, if President Trump were to be reelected in 2024, what would there be to stop the left from filing a sternly worded brief with SCOTUS and having him removed from office soon after the 2025 inauguration? After witnessing how Article 3 and state courts have ruled nearly across the board in election cases involving President Trump or America First Republicans, would you really entrust them not to do so? What would be the constitutional remedy to stop it? Here, let me adjust. I maxed out the volume on the other clips. Let Let me bring that down just a bit, just in case this one is much louder. And we will play this clip right here. I wanted to talk. Let's go to seven minute 30 mark. Like it said. Let's go right here. There are a gazillion reasons why that I'm not going to sit here and get into with you right now. But it's a stupid idea, in my opinion. No, thank you. 
Um, also, you don't want the SCOTUS to have the power to remove sitting elected officials. Let me give you a hypothetical. Donald Trump wins in 2024. And the left decides that they don't want him to be president anymore. So they file a very sternly worded brief to the Supreme Court. They argue in front of the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court decides to remove Trump from office because maybe they paid a couple of them off or maybe some of them got corrupt or whatever. And now the Supreme Court has reversed essentially the will of the entire country on the whim of a weaponized political party. Oh, that runs the same gamut for any other elected official in your state representative, your sitting senator, whatever. Like that, if the courts just had the power to willy nilly unseat people from office, we would be in a much different country right now. Much different. There are separation of powers for a reason. And we do not directly elect the court which is why the court does not remove people from office. You don't want SCOTUS to have the power to remove sitting elected officials. Do you guys, do you guys understand what would happen if that was the case? Mark Elias, Mark Elias and a legion of Democrat lawyers would be filing lawsuits to remove every America first candidate from every office across this country from local to federal level. It would be it would be the biggest shit show you've ever seen. That's why this case has no merit. Next section of the article. Congress always has the final say. One thing that needs to be understood under our constitutional system, Congress always has the final say in who is or is not the president. Whether that means certification of the presidential election, removal by impeachment, or removal by the 25th Amendment, Congress always has the last word. And that's by design. The case often cited to refute this point, point is the landmark SCOTUS decision, Bush v. Gore, that resolved the disputed 2000 presidential election. While it is true that the decision cleared the way for Governor George W. Bush to be declared the eventual winner, Congress still had to effectively sign off on the SCOTUS decision by its certification of the presidential electoral count. Had they chosen to do so as Democrats attempted, Congress still had the constitutional authority to set aside the electors from the state of Florida and vote to certify the 2000 election for Vice President Al Gore. Instead, putting him in the White House, and SCOTUS couldn't have done anything to overrule them. In the aftermath of the 2020 election, despite losing 60 plus, and that's losing in quotation marks, 60 plus election contest cases brought by President Trump or on his behalf, Congress again had the constitutional authority to ignore court rulings and certify Trump as the winner. The reason that January 6, 2021 Fed's erection was necessary is simple. The American public was never presented with the actual evidence of the 2020 election fortification. The cabal could not risk members of Congress changing their minds at the last minute due to political pressure for constituents outraged after hearing all the evidence and refusing to certify electors from at least three of the contested states. 
Had that happened, the election would have been declared contested, and the House of Representatives voted by state delegation, 50 votes total, to determine the winner. Republicans, holding the majority of state delegations, presumably would have declared President Trump the winner. It was a risk they couldn't take. Thanks to the January 6th Capitol Hill riot, all presentations of evidence ceased, and the leadership was able to rush the congressional certification through. The person most harmed politically by the events of January 6th was President Trump himself, and it's the clearest indication that he had nothing to do with it. The Constitutional Convention of 1787 and the Elector's Clause. This, however, further undermines the merits of the Brunson Petition. The notion the founders never anticipated malfeasance or foreign interference to occur in a presidential election is simply not true. In fact, they expected it. Article 1, Section 4, known as the Elections or Electors Clause of the Constitution, was the most hotly contested debate during the Constitutional Convention of 1787. The Emoluments Clause was added out of the fear that European monarchies would simply bribe U.S. government officials with titles of nobility and seize control of the newly founded country that way. The requirement that the president be a U.S. natural-born citizen was included, in part to prevent a European royal from sending over a prince or the like to get elected and then have the chief executive beholden to a foreign ruler. For various reasons, fewer than 44,000 votes were to be cast. Pardon me. In total, during the first ever presidential election of 1788 to 89. So the eligible voting population was not very large at all, and relatively few fraudulent votes could easily tip the scales one way or the other. All of these scenarios were considered possible and likely at the time of the constitutional ratification. So to believe the founders did not anticipate these types of events and address them within the text of the Constitution is simply wrong. Anyone arguing we are in unprecedented times or extra constitutional remedies are required doesn't understand the design of the system or our history. Here, you had 13 staunchly independent former colonies who had just found a war, fought a war of independence to free themselves from a tyrannical foreign ruler. Out of that fear, the original Articles of Confederation did not even provide for a true chief executive to administer the federal government. They were now coming together to agree on a process to elect one chief executive with authority over all of them. With the divides already forming between North and South, free states and slave states, industrial and agricultural, they knew electing a unanimous candidate to fill the position was next to impossible. <clears throat> For those reasons, they had to develop a process with robust opportunities to contest. The outcome had to had to provide as much assurance to as many as possible that the will of the people had been carried out, but it also needed to provide for finality. The founders realized these elections would be fiercely contested, 
and the elected chief executive could not be subject to removal at any moment for the entire four-year term. The co-equal executive branch would be unable to function effectively with election contest issues hanging over it. The constitutional system wouldn't survive, hence the reasons for the complexity of the elector's clause. Past examples and cases. Both John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, in their capacities as vice presidents, presided over highly controversial congressional certifications that resulted in themselves being named president. The legality of their actions is still being debated to this day by constitutional scholars. Yet despite this, there was never any possibility the Supreme Courts of the time had the power to retroactively review their actions and remove them from the presidency once sworn into office. SCOTUS simply does not have the power to do it. Let's imagine for a second that SCOTUS did. Do you see the problem that would create? The Supreme Court of the U.S. would have had extraordinary leverage over Adams and Jefferson. Knowing they could simply take up the case and remove them at any point, both founding fathers would have been completely neutered and unable to challenge SCOTUS on any hot-button issue of the day. An untenable circumstance between two co-equal branches of government meant to be in conflict by design. Trump election attorney Jenna Ellis concisely explained the process during an interview with Sebastian Gorka, starting at the four-minute mark. The interview took place during the last uproar over a supposed upcoming Hail Mary case. This was back when the likes of disgraced Pulitzer Prize-winning P-tape truther Maggie Haberman pushed the fake news story that Trump believed SCOTUS intended to reinstate him as president in August 2021. This is the four-minute mark. Let me get this ready. Uh, Jenna Ellis, former attorney to the President of the United States, uh, uh, chairwoman of the once, I don't mean to laugh, I think it'll be a, a shoe in he'll walk back into the White House if we do our job when it comes to election integrity. But to those who are saying he can be president now, that he can come back and he can take over the last three and a half years of, of Biden's term, there is no... There's no, there's no process. There's no entity. It's not the Supreme Court. It's not a, a magic electoral. There, there is no functional scenario under which that happens, is there, Jenna? Correct. And it is very unfortunate. And I have to preface this by saying I understand the utter frustration and the injustice of it all. And I am just as mad as everyone else. But what we have to understand is that we are a nation of rules and our supreme law of the land is the U.S. Constitution. And because the Constitution provides that the Electoral College is our mechanism of selecting the president, the Electoral College voted. That was certified legitimately. So when you have a sitting president and his name right now is Joe Biden, then the only way to remove a sitting president is through the impeachment and conviction process. And even if... That happened to Joe Biden, which we know politically it won't, even if in hypothetical theory land that happened, the line of succession then under the 25th Amendment would trigger 
And so you, there's no scenario by which you take an outside person and put somebody, and else, put someone in. else in. And the reason for that, let's think about that practically speaking. If we are conservatives and Americans and we want to make sure that we have consistency in our rule of law, we should appreciate that and it sucks for us right now and it's terrible because we all wish that president trump would come back but there's no mechanism so that you don't get a usurper so so here let me put it again in layman's terms there's no (laughs) there's no constitutional way to undo what was done last year and and the idea that conservatives want to use unconstitutional means to reassert the Constitution is asinine. Well, and I've seen so That actually has is bothering me lately because I've seen that being made, that case being made, not just lately, but it has flared up lately of people arguing for extra constitutional and unconstitutional means of trying to correct some of this stuff. And we, we cannot, we cannot sink to that low guys. We can't change our principles and who we are in order to get what we want in order to try. We it's, it's back to the, I mean, it's as simple as two wrongs. Don't make a right. Um, Again, I, I empathize. I really do. I really empathize. We're in agreement on what we think is wrong, and we're in agreement on what we want to eventually happen, what we want to be corrected. But the pathway to get to that has to be legal. It has to be right. It ha- We have to stick true to our principles. And we have to be realistic. Back to the article. One of the most popular theories batted around is that SCOTUS took this case, which again is false. SCOTUS has not taken the case, to hold over the heads of members of Congress during the current lame duck session. That is precisely why SCOTUS does not have the power to remove members of Congress or any other sitting elected official. It would mean they were beholden to SCOTUS on any decision they make or risk losing their elected office by stepping out of line. If SCOTUS did have that power, then we don't live in a constitutional representative republic. We are governed by an all-powerful ruling council of five unelected government officials with lifetime appointments who are accountable to no one. I hope you guys, I hope you guys really get that. If SCOTUS did have the power to do what the Brunson case is asking them to do, then that would mean five unelected Lifetime appointed judges on SCOTUS become the most powerful people in this country and now have the power. I mean, they, they, they can, they, they, we've just, we have five, we have a dictator crew of five, basically not literal dictators, but they, it would make them the most powerful people in the country, and there'd be no way to remove them. Lifetime appointments, unelected. We, we that it's unworkable. It's it's unworkable, and it's not constitutional. Twenty eighteen North Carolina ninth congressional district election. 
One case often held up as an example of when courts removed a member of Congress is the 2018 North Carolina 9th Congressional District election. There are several myths about this election contest that need to be dispelled. First, the election was never overturned by any court. The decision was made by the North Carolina State Board of Elections, a creation of the North Carolina State Legislature and administered by the state's executive branch. So, the judiciary is not involved in any manner. Second, Mark Harris initially declared the winner, but whose victory was later overturned, never had his election certified and was never seated in Congress. Had Harris been certified or seated, any effort to overturn the election result and remove him would have fallen to the U.S. House of Representatives. The courts did not have the final say in the outcome. Fraud vitiates everything. Another phrase that gets thrown around a lot and cited explicitly in the Brunson petition is fraud vitiates, makes void, everything into which it enters. This is a legal doctrine established in U.S. contract law. It was first established in the case of United States versus Throckmorton and later expounded on in cases like Veterans Service Club versus Sweeney and Radio Shack Corp versus ComSmart. These cases set legal precedents that any contract entered into by fraudulent means invalidates the entire arrangement and everything goes back to the beginning. While this type of legalese might sound pretty convincing to an untrained ear, legal precedents in contract law do not trump constitutional powers. Suppose someone is telling you the legal opinions in U.S. versus Throckmorton. In that case, VSC versus Sweeney or Radio Shack versus ComSmart supersede a plain reading of processes spelled out in the first three articles of the U.S. Constitution. They're kidding themselves, and they've got something to sell you. Texas versus Pennsylvania. This is not to say the founders intended the judicial branch to have no role in the election contest process. It is spelled out right in the Constitution, Article 3, Section 2, Clause 2. If SCOTUS intended to intervene in the 2020 election ahead of the Electoral College count and congressional certification, they had their chance. Anytime a state sues another state, SCOTUS has original jurisdiction over the case. This means they are literally the only court in the land that can hear the case. The overall theory behind the doctrine is in any case brought in a district or circuit containing one of the litigants would give that state a home field advantage and likely result in an unjust outcome. This was also explicitly done with presidential elections in mind. As mentioned, 13 independent states, with little trust in one another, entered into an arrangement to select a single chief executive with authority over all of them. Should one of those states choose electors in a manner that violated the terms of the Constitution, the founders put in a mechanism whereby it could be challenged straight to SCOTUS ahead of the Electoral College count. Thereby, including the judicial branch and adding another layer for robust challenges. <clears throat> Just such an election case was brought in 2020, Texas versus Pennsylvania. Texas Attorney General Kim Paxson originally filed the lawsuit with the help of drafting by current Carrie Lake lead election counsel Kurt Olson. 
The suit was initially filed against four other states, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Alleging election officials in those states had bypassed laws established by their respective state legislatures as required by the electors clause and certified electors unconstitutionally. Nearly 20 states and state attorney generals joined with Texas in the lawsuit by filing Amici briefs along with President Trump, over 100 members of Congress and countless other federal and state officials with 20 other states filing Amici briefs, Amici briefs. On the side of the four defendant states, over 40 states in total in the suit. Given that no other court could hear the case and there was nowhere else to appeal, SCOTUS had the authority and the constitutional obligation to give the lawsuit an evidentiary hearing as intended by the framers. Despite this, SCOTUS denied the petition for a writ of certiori by a 6-3 vote for lack of standing. A legal doctrine that didn't exist in the first 150 years of American case law and was never contemplated by the founders in the Constitution, Constitutional Convention, Federalist Papers, or anywhere else. In our opinion, it represents one of the worst acts or inactions in the history of the Supreme Court. Yep. In a dissenting statement by Justice Alito and Justice Thomas, they wrote, In my view, we do not have discretion to deny the filing of a bill of complaint in a case that falls within our original jurisdiction. And they were right. If anything, the court has since shifted left with Biden's appointment of Justice Kentonji Brown-Jackson to replace Stephen Breyer. I actually kind of disagree with that. I don't think it's much of a change. So to believe SCOTUS is going to step in with no constitutional authority when they refuse then, where they had the absolute obligation to do so to provide a room for 2020 election makes no sense. It's a pipe dream. Now, I do agree with that. There is no magic bullet. As we stated in the beginning, our purpose for writing this column isn't to dampen your spirits, rob you of hope, or blackpill you. And it's certainly not to enrich ourselves or to add to a following. As Beans commented in her Telegram voice memo thread, quote, I know there's a lot of people going bonkers crazy over this thing, and they get very mad at you when you point out these deficiencies. But they exist. Don't kill the messenger just because I'm pointing this stuff out. I'm blown away by about how angry people get. It's going to be disappointing. And I don't know whether people are willfully misinforming you or misinforming you because they're just as hopeful as everyone else and don't understand the background. If that were our goal, trust us, we would run with this story as many others, normally reliable, New sources have. The volume of emails, text, messages, and posts asking us to cover this case in detail has been unreal. And the reaction to everything that isn't utter praise for the lawsuit has been nothing less than vicious. But Uncover DC's motto is actual journalism, and the truth is the truth. This story 
the Brunson case is clickbait. It's clickbait gold and has caught fire on social media and among the America First base like few other stories we've seen. But it seems to be falling into a pattern we've kept seeing over the last few years. There's always a plan or a miracle case for which we all keep waiting. Some magic bullet or savior that will come in and save us all without us having to do much ourselves. There is no magic bullet. Nobody is coming to save us. We got into the position as a country we're in today, frankly, out of complacency, and it happened over a long period of time. We were given warnings from history, and we ignored them or assumed somebody else is keeping an eye on that. We've talked a lot about the Constitution in this column. The founders warned us what would happen if we allowed the government to get too powerful and our liberties to erode. If the separation of powers began to fade or control to be concentrated in the hands of just a few, that'd be tyranny. As Benjamin Franklin replied to Mrs. Powell of Philadelphia, we have a republic if you can keep it. There's only one road back, and that's for each America First patriot to work as hard and relentlessly to build back the Republic as those who have worked to try to tear it down. They didn't do it overnight. It's going to take time, a long time, with setbacks along the way. And once we're back, and make no mistake, we will get back. We will have to struggle relentlessly to ensure it never happens again. Because the forces who hate this country and want to see her destroyed aren't going anywhere. And as as always, remember, we are still that shining city upon a hill, the greatest nation on earth, and the hope of all mankind. It's time to go fight for her peacefully and patriotically. And that's about all I have to say tonight, except for one thing. The past few days when I've been at that window upstairs, I've thought a bit of the shining city upon a hill. The phrase comes from John Winthrop, who wrote it to describe the America he imagined. What he imagined was important because he was an early pilgrim, an early freedom man. He journeyed here on what today we'd call a little wooden boat. And like the other pilgrims, he was looking for a home that would be free. I've spoken of the shining city all my political life, but I don't know if I ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds living in harmony and peace. A city with pre-ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, The walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. That's how I saw it and see it still. And how stands the city on this winter night? More prosperous, more secure, and happier than it was eight years ago. But more than that, after 200 years, two centuries, 
She still stands strong and true on the granite ridge, and her glow is held steady no matter what storm. And she's still a beacon, still a magnet for all who must have freedom, for all the pilgrims from all the lost places who are hurtling through the darkness toward home. We've done our part, and as I walk off into the city streets, a final word to the men and women of the Reagan Revolution, the men and women across America who for eight years did the work that brought America back. My friends, we did it. We weren't just marking time. We made a difference. We made the city stronger. We made the city freer. And we left it in good hands. All in all, not bad. Not bad at all. And so, goodbye. God bless you. And God bless the United States of America. Like I said earlier on, I wish I could tell you this was, this was it. This was the magic bullet. This was the Hail Mary that was going to get caught and run in for a touchdown. But it ain't. And like Tracy Beans and Uncover DC, I've gotten tons of messages about this case. Like I said, every day. Like I'm talking, guys, I it might be over a thousand times I've been contacted about this case. And that's why, that's why I'm presenting this and that's, that's why I'm addressing it again. Um, it's going to get denied. So don't get your hopes up in it. Don't get your hopes up in it. And, and the people that are, that are pushing it, um, it's concerning. It's, con- it's concerning the, the outlets that are, that are really pushing. This as something I think it should be a red flag to you. So, um, that's my presentation on this case. We still have something else to talk about. Um, and I'm sorry if, this article upset anybody what was said in this article, but the truth is the truth. And this article has far more merit than the Brunson case has. <laughs> um, if yeah, we have, we have, we have to have some discernment about these things. We have to have some discernment about these things. And, you know, uh, while I was listening to that, to Reagan there, and the uh the conclusion of this article here um which i very i very much appreciate this article i think it's extreme i think it's exceptional um from uncover dc something that really bothers me is how fragile people think america is um It really bothers me. And I feel like 
it's it's something that has been purposefully programmed into us to believe that America is so weak and fragile and on the verge of collapse. Um, I was thinking about it as I was seeing Reagan there. And I think it's come from the left and the right, specifically media and influencers have, have really pushed into us that America is on the verge of being lost, that she's, she, we're not going to make it. We can't survive another year. We can't survive another two years, whatever. And I do not believe that at all. At all. And I think, I think it's, I think it's offensive. I think, it, I think it's offensive that people would seriously believe and then try and get others to believe that America is so fragile that these 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 buffoons these buffoons in congress can destroy america that that we can't make it through 4 years of joe biden i mean i think i think it's Yeah, I just, I just, it, it just, it, it bothers me that people have fallen for that, and I, and it's not, that's not a denial of things being, uh, that they're, that it's not a denial of there being some things that we need to fix, or some things that are wrong, or some things that are very concerning. I mean, like the border, or supply chain issues, or the issues with the vax, or um, a number of other things that are wrong and unjust, um. But what's, what's, I feel like we're just so much stronger than that. I don't feel like that. I know. I know. And I feel like the effort to get people to have such a, a negative, a negative view of America is a, whether intentional or not on the part of some um, is a, is part of a concerted effort to, to black pill you into depression and to black pill you into giving up. I think the only way that we do not take our country back and restore it back to where it needs to be I think the only way that we do not win this battle, this war that we're in is by giving up. And I think one of the ways that they, that, that I think one of the ways that our good intentions and our, 
our resolve is is uh um corrupted and uh misled is through cases like the Brunson case. So Sorry, I spent so much time on the Brunson case a bit, but I think I needed to I needed to cover this. Um there there we're not gonna fix anything in this country. Nothing in this country is gonna be fixed overnight. We're our, our, it's not gonna be fixed overnight. It's not. It wasn't torn down overnight. Our country wasn't damaged overnight. It's not gonna be repaired overnight. But I'm here for the long haul. I don't know about you guys. I'm here. I'm here for the long haul. I'm here. I'm here for making incremental improvements to our country every day for the rest of my life. I'm not looking for a magic fix. I'm looking to add to a trajectory of constant improvement and constant return to America being a constitutional republic. Yeah, it's Rocky's girl. That's right. This is a marathon, not a sprint. This is a marathon. Seems like maybe a good time to bring up this quote. Euripides, man's most valuable trait is a judici judicious sense of what not to believe. Man's most valuable trait is a judicious sense of what not to believe. Now, I happen to have my wife at home today. And what you hear, Sammy the Squirrel, yeah, what you hear is are my kids running laps around the dining room upstairs above me. Um, we still have the speakership to cover. So if you guys will let me refill my coffee cup one more time, if you'll just let me refill my coffee cup one more time, one more intermission. And we will come back and we'll cover the speakership vote, which is happening tomorrow. Um, let me, uh, I'm trying to remember which one of these I like to play for y'all. Hold on just a moment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're going to get to the speakership stuff, which is going to be controversial, and I'm probably going to get get myself in a lot of trouble, uh, like I did over the weekend. But, I mean, I'm here for it. Y'all are here for it. Let's do it. All right, we're going to have another three-minute intermission, intermission and uh, come back here and cover our last topic. So, get this music going, and I'll see y'all in three minutes.
I made it back in less than three minutes. While <laughs> Wild Ting says I play love making tracks for uh, for us on intermission. Space beard kink shit. <laughs> oh my god. Oh no. Um <laughs> Oh gosh. Um, I can honestly say I've never made love to uh, that that music there. No, uh, I much prefer jazz and uh, um, Deftones, things like things like that. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> okay, let's get let's get ready for this. We're gonna get on a different topic here. Oh man. Okay, so I got myself into a lot of trouble over the weekend. Um one one because I got um I got something wrong in my post, but really it's what I said that that upset people. Um and I I could have said it in a better way. Sometimes I struggle with that. Sometimes I uh so, sometimes I get an idea in my head and it's just like churning, churning, churning. Like it's just like feels like this thing running in my head and I want to, I want, I want to put it out. And then after I do so, I'm like, Oh, that was not the right way to say that. Or I should have included, um, I, I should have included, you know, a little bit more information there that would have uh, clarified where I'm coming from on this. Um, This was one of those times. So I posted that yesterday that Kevin McCarthy is hands down the best speaker of the house since Newt Gingrich and should should serve as that role again. Totally messed that post up. Totally messed up because what I should have said is Kevin McCarthy is hands down the best choice for Speaker of the House since Newt Gingrich and should serve in that role. So I totally misstated what I needed to say um, because I was just, it was just like boiling in my head and I got it wrong. But I'm not wrong in what I'm trying to put forth. I'm wrong in the way that I said it. And before y'all try to put me in a, you know, tar and feather me, okay? Just bear with me for a minute. Before you tar and feather me, I'm not saying that I like Kevin McCarthy. I'm not trying to tell you that Kevin McCarthy is America first or MAGA. I'm not trying to tell you that Kevin McCarthy is someone that... I want to go out and have beers with or that, you know, I, I'm not trying to say secretly this, whatever I'm not, that's not what I'm presenting. What I'm, what I am putting forth is that there are very good reasons why Trump endorsed McCarthy for speaker. There's very good reasons why Trump endorsed McCarthy. 
And, and Trump tried to tell people this past summer that they needed to back off McCarthy. And he didn't say it to other political opponents. He told you this on Truth Social. He said McCarthy is not a rhino. And that McCarthy has done a lot of good work for the GOP and for America. And that he doesn't deserve all the grief he is getting. And this effort to block McCarthy being speaker is really concerning me, guys. It's it's really bothering me. Um, and I said that it smells a bit swampy to me. And I don't mean that everybody who is opposing McCarthy, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're um, that they're swampy. But I do think that the swamp would prefer McCarthy not be speaker. I think they want the fight. I think they want this this fight for uh, um, the speaker to happen because they want it to be a mess. They want Republicans to get in their own way on the very first day of them having the House. Now, remember, this isn't about who we like, okay? This isn't about who we agree with the most. This is about who we can elect to do this job of Speaker of the House. To put it to, put it to you pretty simply here, Andy Biggs, Matt Gates, Jim Jordan, who doesn't even want it, and Trump. They don't have a chance in hell of being speaker. They are not an option. That's, that's There is no universe that exists right now where any of those people have the number of votes needed to be elected speaker. It's not a thing. It's not a possibility. Look, I really, really, really want a Subaru STI. I, I really want an STI. It ain't going to happen. It's not in my budget. I can't afford one. I can want one all the, like I, it doesn't matter how much I want one. It doesn't matter how much I love it. It doesn't matter how much I, how great I think the car is. It doesn't matter how happy I would be if I had that car. It doesn't matter how well I would take care of that car. It doesn't matter how fast that car is or anything like that. <laughs> it's not possible for me to be able to purchase that car and pay the insurance on it 
and also be able to pay for my home and all these other things that I have to pay for as a husband and, and a dad. So I have a Subaru Outback instead, which I love, but it's not as fun as an STI. I know that's not the best analogy here, but the point I'm trying to make is that it's, we can, we can, there can be these other candidates. There's these other people that are more MAGA than McCarthy, who we like more than McCarthy, who we agree with more than we agree with Kevin McCarthy but they don't have the votes. Trump is not going to be Speaker of the House. The Republicans have a very small majority. It's a very narrow margin. Very narrow. And McCarthy... is the one with the best chance of being elected speaker. He has the most votes. I actually think that if Trump actually threw his threw his hat in to be speaker, he would have less votes than McCarthy. You got to remember, this is all of the, the House is going to vote on a speaker, okay? The Democrats aren't going to vote for Trump to be speaker, are they? And there's some rhinos who aren't going to vote for Trump to be speaker. There's only, there's only so many, this is, there's only so many votes available here. And, this idea that Trump is going to be elected speaker or that Biggs or, or Jordan or Gates or somebody else, I just do not see how it's, I don't see that path guys. I don't see it at all. And that's not to say that McCarthy is great. He himself is great. It's just, it's just the reality. Let's talk, let's talk about Jim Jordan. Okay. HQ Lion brought up Mike Lindell. He's not running for it. He says he's running for uh, uh chairman of the RNC. Uh, but let's just, let's just thank Mike Lindell. Mike Lindell would make a good speaker. You know what? I think Mike Lindell might actually make a good speaker someday. Okay, let's say that Mike Lindell threw in. That's someone we like. That's someone who's America first, who's a Trump supporter, who's all about election fraud. Um, Mike Lindell has no chance. He has no, there's not enough, there's, he's not going to have enough votes. The votes aren't there. <laughs> They're just not there. Same thing with Trump. Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan is the number one person that has been presented to me is, is who we need to be Speaker of the House. One, Jim Jordan doesn't want to be Speaker. 
Two, Jim Jordan is much better placed on the Judiciary Committee. And McCarthy has said that Jim Jordan, he would make Jim Jordan chair of the Judiciary Committee. Jim Jordan, his skill set, what he is good at, his skills are best used in a committee where he can keep doing what he has been doing. I, th- I think what's happening here is like everybody's thinking way too much about who who is really good on TV and who is really good at sound bites and who is really good when they go on Steve Bannon's war room, who they like. And they're not thinking about where they could best be effective. The, the speaker, the speaker has to be someone who can, who can get all, all the, the full spectrum of the GOP to unite together around objectives. And that means somebody who has to negotiate with people on the moderate side and people who are way right. If you have, if you have somebody in there who is, um, who is too far right, who is too MAGA, you're going to lose a significant number of moderates and rhinos. They're not going to go along with what you want to do. And that's going to result in stalemates. That's going to result in stagnation. We have, we have big hopes for the house right now, right? We have our expectations of what we're going to try and accomplish with the GOP controlled house over the next two years. We got a lot of things we want to get done, right? Right now, we are, I fear we are really in danger of, of screwing this whole thing up before we even begin. McCarthy has, he's, he's only like a handful of votes shy. Let's, let's just say he's a dozen votes shy. It's somewhere in that neighborhood guys. It's not, it's not like this is, um, it's not like McCarthy is a long shot. The only reason he's not a sure thing is because of five to 10 Republicans who are putting their foot down and saying, we won't support McCarthy. And that's enough to rob him of the votes he needs to actually, actually get elected. He's made some concessions here. One of the concessions he has made, which I think is a really good one is that there is a rule about um, revoking the speakership. And McCarthy has agreed to lower the threshold to just five. So if five members of the GOP say that we have no faith in the speaker, he needs to be removed, then that causes a vote on it. In other words, McCarthy has to make sure 
that no more than five people in the GOP are are uh, are ready to remove him. Which means what? Which means he's going to have to be more MAGA. Which means he's going to have to come MAGA's way, right? His leash is going to be five votes long. I think that's a pretty big concession. I think that's a pretty good leash to keep him on. Let me grab um, this right here. This is what we're looking at. The vote is tomorrow. This is from Roll Call. Whether or not Kevin McCarthy becomes Speaker under the incoming House Republican majority, the January 3rd floor election to determine who will make take the gavel from Nancy Pelosi is poised to be the most dramatic in a century. A small faction of never-Kevin Republicans is threatening to ensure McCarthy is denied the 218 votes needed to win the speakership. But a large group of Republicans who have pledged to vote for only Kevin are making clear they won't support any other returning members of Congress for the role. The two positions are seemingly irreconcilable, and members on both sides of the intra-party standoff predict the Speaker's election will require multiple ballots for the first time since 1923. McCarthy and his allies are still trying to negotiate a truce that will allow him to get the votes he needs on the first ballot. But as of Friday afternoon, that'd be this last Friday, no compromise had been reached. Over the weekend, there's been a bit of a compromise, but not enough. The House Rules Package, which the Chamber will vote on after the Speaker is elected, has become the primary focus of negotiations in which McCarthy could offer some concessions to his opponents. But McCarthy's detractors are not all on the same page, making it difficult to come up with a rules package that would satisfy enough of those who have yet to commit to supporting his speaker bid without turning off the members who already support him. Five Republicans, Andy Biggs, Bob Good, Matt Gates, Matt Rosendale, and Ralph Norman, have publicly broadcast plans to vote against McCarthy on January 3rd. The five have organized as a block and vowed McCarthy can't peel them off individually. Any concessions he offer would be debated among all five. The five-member block is powerful because four is the maximum number of votes McCarthy could lose in what will be a 222-member conference and still become speaker if no one is absent or votes present. Only members voting for a speaker candidate by name count towards determining the majority threshold McCarthy needs to win, which would be 218. Norman is viewed as the most amenable to concessions, along with other conservative House Freedom Caucus members who are not part of the block of five hard McCarthy opponents, but have withheld their support for him as they pushed for rule changes. But the other four have indicated the few House rules McCarthy is willing to change likely won't be enough to win their support. Quote, I don't see any scenario where I'd support Kevin McCarthy as House Speaker. McCarthy has a track record of cutting backdoor deals with Democrats, Biggs tweeted on Thursday, along with a Fox News clip in which he made the same points. 
Gates, the only public McCarthy opponent who is not an official member of the House Freedom Caucus, has also said there's no scenario in which he would vote for McCarthy. Good and Rosendale have also been sour on McCarthy as a leader, irrespective of the rule changes they want to see. Quote, we must change the rules and leadership if we are going to restore functionality to Congress. There are many more than five who recognize this. This tweet, Rosendale's, links to a clip of Florida Rep-elect Anna Paulina Luna telling Steve Bannon on his War Room podcast that she's received a lot of emails from constituents telling her not to vote for McCarthy. I do listen to my constituents, she says. Luna said a rule change. The Freedom Caucus has been pushing to restore the power of a single member to offer a privileged motion to vacate the chair. The procedural mechanism for the ousting as a a speaker is incredibly important in determining how she'll vote in the speaker's election. Quote, I'm not going to vote for anyone that doesn't embrace that change. The motion to vacate is the tool Freedom Caucus members used in 2015 to help force out then-Speaker Boehner. McCarthy ran for speaker then, then back in 2015, but dropped out just before the conference nomination vote amid opposition from the Freedom Caucus. Democrats changed the motion to vacate the rule in 2019 after taking back the majority. Now it can only be brought up to vote over the objection of leadership if offered at the direction of a party caucus or conference instead of just a single member. House Republicans adopted a a conference rule change in November stating that their conference could bring forward a motion to vacate in an effort to prevent Democrats from choosing the speaker. How the motion to vacate will be structured in House rules has been up for debate. The key question is how many members should it take to sign onto a motion to vacate resolution to make it privileged? According to a member familiar with the negotiations, Jim Jordan, a former Freedom Caucus chair who is supporting McCarthy's bid, floated a compromise that would set the threshold to five, and that is what has been since agreed to, guys. Five. So, think about that. Jim Jordan, who is the number one person who has been brought up to me as the person who should be Speaker, supports McCarthy. Trump supports McCarthy. MTG supports McCarthy. I think that's because they're being realist. This is, I'm going to cut right to the point right now. This is my big fear. This is what I am really fearing right here. I think I have it right here on this, right here. Here. The vote's tomorrow, guys, and this is, this is what's happening. There is a real risk here. That because of people applying a purity test to the speakership and wanting someone who is great at 30-second sound bites, who plays well to MAGA, wanting someone who in reality can't get the votes to win, that Dems and Rhinos are able to elect someone far, far less desirable than McCarthy. And the GOP's control of the House is undone within the first couple weeks. In my opinion, a lot of people are playing checkers on this one. 
and this isn't this isn't I don't I don't think I'm out of line here guys. This is a real risk and it's gotten even worse this morning. Because nine Republicans have issued a statement late last night that they will not be supporting McCarthy as speaker. He has been in leadership role for 14 years, and they aren't confident that he will keep his promises going forward, so they are not willing to accept him as speaker. Those representatives are Scott Perry, Paul Gosar, Andy Ogles, Anna Paulina Luna, Eli Crane, Chip Roy, Dan Bishop, Andy Harris, and Andrew Clyde. And what, in my opinion, what's going on here is that they are making perfect the enemy of good. And if you're not familiar with that expression, what it means is that you have something good in front of you, but because it isn't perfect, you're saying, no, I don't want it. No. And what's going to end up happening, what's going to end up happening, guys, I'm afraid, is that Republicans are going to get in their own way and they're going to stumble embarrassingly bad on the very first day of having house control of the house. And if they can't get it together very quickly, then moderate and rhino members of the Republican party may compromise with some more conservative Democrats and elect someone who is worse than McCarthy. This is, we don't have, we don't have a majority, we don't have like a 280 person hold of the house. We have 222. And I get, I get playing games like, um, I get I get playing playing game and I don't mean like to uh to to deride it at all. Um the, you know negotiating here. Some Republicans holding out and saying we're not going to vote for you unless we get these concessions and um then they say okay, well we'll we'll concede this far. McCarthy has the rule change on vacating the speakership, maybe some other agreements on who's going to be committee chairs and all this committee assignments and all this kind of stuff. Like I totally get all the negotiation thing. But I'm not I'm not convinced that it, this is actually negotiating. I think this is shooting ourselves in the foot before the race even starts. I, th- I think I'm really I'm really concerned about this. Um Bob Good went on Fox today and says there will be 10 to 15 members tomorrow who are going to block McCarthy. And he says they have an America First candidate that will be on the second ballot for speaker. And it's a new name. Check this out. Here, let me uh, let me up that volume a bit. 
I suspect 10 to 15 members will vote against him on the first ballot tomorrow uh, that will vote for Andy Biggs. Uh, but then I think you'll see on the second ballot uh, an increasing number of members vote for uh, a true uh, candidate who can represent the conservative center of the conference, can motivate the base, inspire Republicans across the country, get country, get to 218 votes, bring our conference together to fight against the uh, radical Democrat agenda, the most extreme so, agenda so, we've so ever wait, seen. Wait, wait, let me stop you there. Who is that name? We, we, here we are in the 11th yeah. hour. There are no names. Give me a name. It's not Andy Biggs. Andy Biggs isn't going to win. Well, well, I'm going to resist for a few more hours what I have resisted for the last several weeks because, as you know, if we were to put forth a name right now over the last few weeks, weeks, that person would suffer all the attacks and retaliation and all the so, threats. So you don't which... have a name. I mean, is it, what leader? Absolutely. Griff, you'll see that name tomorrow on the second. Wait, so they have, there's someone else who is America first, who is somehow going to get more votes than McCarthy, but they're not going to tell us his name. And they're going to offer him on the second ballot. This feels like a stunt to me. This feels like a ridiculous stunt. I, I, I look, I, I sincerely hope I'm wrong. I sincerely hope I'm wrong and that this is actually super, super clever and I'm going to be amazed. And on Wednesday when I do my show, I'm going to be like, oh, guys, I was so wrong about this whole thing with McCarthy and the speaker. This and I and they did this and it's brilliant. And now we have so and so that was a I can't believe I didn't figure this out. Like, I hope so. I hope like I'm ser I'm very very serious here. I really hope that I am wrong and this isn't a stunt. It's actually a really clever play. But right now I think it's a stunt. I think these I think there's 10 to 15 members who are grandstanding who are soaking up a bunch of cameras, camera attention and media attention and making sure they get on Bannon's show and I don't think it's good. I, I do not think this is good. I think the I think the good play here is to vote McCarthy. Let him take heat for being speaker. We can continue bashing him for all of his bad decisions. Get Jordan as a committee chair on the judiciary. Get MTG back on her committee assignments. Vote in the rules package that keeps McCarthy on a short leash. With five votes needed to vacate by any, any, any five members can vote for a vacate of the speakership. Put forth the Republicans agenda and get to work. I, I think that the best way for the GOP to come into Congress and show that they are serious about doing a better job than the last Congress is to actually do a better job from day one. I am. Um, uh, my, I'm, I'm very, very concerned here, guys. Very concerned. The, the nightmare scenario is that 
we are the Republicans on day one can't even elect a speaker, which means they can't even vote on a rules package, which means they can't even vote on committee assignments and agenda items. And Congress gets off to a false start with a bunch of infighting and the Democrats are on the other side of the aisle laughing. And that this goes on for more than one day. And eventually Democrats and rhinos and moderates unite and vote in somebody who is worse than McCarthy. And then they have to renegotiate what the rules package is and all of this stuff. I mean, it, this thing could go, this, this thing could go disastrously bad. That's, that's my real fear here. My real fear. Um, yeah, yeah, Iowa Trump, a total, it'll be a total waste. A total waste. And all for what? For a bunch of grandstanding and, and invites to, to war room and viral social media posts. Um, I... You know, a, a lot of times I think things are kayfabe, and a lot of times I think it's what um, Monopolent just said, looking weak when you're actually strong, but I don't think this is one of those times. I don't. Yeah, Brian Murphy. You, uh, yeah, I, I have considered it, Brian, but I just don't think this is one of those times that this is kayfabe. I really don't. Um, I think this is one of those times where a bunch of members who... Re- a bitch, I, I, I think this is uh, a stunt. I think it's a self-serving stunt. Um, so that's, um, I'm not mad about it. I'm just, I'm really, really worried that this is going to go real bad, real fast. Karen, Karen over on Foxhole says that Matt Gates said he was going to nominate Trump. Trump, Trump would get less votes than uh, McCarthy. That's just the reality of it, guys. I mean, Trump would Trump has less of a chance of winning than McCarthy does. You're not you're not going to get 218 members of the House to vote for Trump to be speaker. And that would be a waste of Trump. Trump Trump is more powerful right now than and more influential right now than he ever has been. Why are we going to put him in as speaker where he's going to be locked into this, this role of trying to negotiate with all the Republicans and dealing with all this legislation? And um, it's not just that it's beneath Trump. I just don't see how it's a good use of Trump. Um, and and Trump Trump hasn't been out there saying McCarthy is the greatest guy. And when I say I really do believe that um, that McCarthy is the best choice for speakers since Newt Gingrich. We've had we've had a run of some really bad speakers in the House, and we have we have the. We have the the we have this situation right here where we could elect McCarthy 
And because the margin is so narrow and because the threshold for vacating the, vacating the speakership is a vote of just five people and because Trump has his thumb on McCarthy <clears throat> and because we have a significant but not majority group, we have a significant number of America First representatives in there, but we don't have a majority of them, right? We have a significant number, though. We have a good opportunity here where we could have a lot of influence over McCarthy and and pull him away from being as moderate as he has been. It's not it's not like with Boehner or Paul Ryan, where they had this huge there was a huge group of moderates and rhinos who supported them. And it didn't matter how much the America first type and ultra conservatives complained. They weren't in fear of losing their speakership, right? They weren't in fear of losing their speakership. We could go into this with McCarthy actually being in fear of losing his speakership and knowing he had to stick to what he promised in order to get it. It's just, I, I think a lot of people are playing checkers here, and it's it's this is so risky. I'm really con- I'm really concerned about it. All right, I need to end the show, but I want to go ahead and mention that the Lake lawsuit is uh, she's appealing it to I think it's the Supreme Court of Arizona, um, and oh, this is in the wrong place. Hold oh, just a moment. I need to put that somewhere else. All right. Um, the Lake lawsuit is still ongoing. I will, uh, I'll cover that on Wednesday's show, especially if there's any new developments with it. Um, hopefully, hopefully, um, the Lake lawsuit goes, uh, farther with the appeals. It, she's not just appealing the two counts that, um, were able to be heard during her trial. Um, she's appealing with all of them, all of the, all of the, uh, all the counts she brought up. So we'll see how that how that goes. Um, and then we also had some news. J6 committee released a whole bunch of transcripts. I'm thinking about covering those. It's going to I'm going to have to find some time to read them. They're really long transcript interviews. But the ones I'm interested in are the interviews with Ray Epps, Cash Patel, um, Patrick Byrne and Ali Alexander. The all four of those interviews are pretty interesting to me but they're all they're all way too long. I can't read the whole interview on the show, so I'm going to have to go through them and select out what I want to pull out of them. Um so I'm I'm working on that. Some other people like Chris Paul went through the um interview with Cash Patel. He did a great job and then he immediately got banned from Twitter again <laughs> or suspended. <laughs> um so I had I had an idea that I was going to uh cover his thread on it but i can't access it because he's been suspended so um but hopefully it's just a temporary suspension probably is um and then this thing here the arrest of andrew tate so i i want to caution y'all 
I think we should give this subject, this event, more than 72 hours. I, I think that this is not at all what it seems like. And uh, if we if we have some new information on it that helps clarify the situation, then I'm going to cover this on Wednesday. But I'm um there's a there's an angle to this story that I'm interested in covering. Um, I have an idea of what I think is going on with it, but I'm I need some more information. I need I need some more. I want I'm waiting for some more information to come out. And it went down to Romania, so it's not like it's gonna be really easy to get that information. Uh, but I've seen a lot of takes on this arrest on different sides of it. And I think, I think anyway, I think we should, I think, I think this should just be put back and just said, "Mm, let's, um, let's not come to any conclusions on what's going on with this guy and who this guy is and who this guy might work for and what his actual work might be. Let's just put it over here and wait for more information. Um, heck, it might need it might need weeks to figure out what's going on with this because uh, I do not think it is what it seems at all. So, all right, fam, appreciate appreciate y'all. Sorry. Um, Thank you for the rumble rants. I think I missed a few while I was going, but I was, I was just going and needed to keep going, but thank you guys for the rumble rants and for the red pills over on Foxhole and D live. I was able to log into D live for the first time in like three months today. And so, and somebody gave me a lemon over there. Uh, Zub, Zuby 360. Thank you very much for the five lemons. Much appreciated. And uh, yeah, guys, I hope y'all have a great day. Stay positive out there. Remember, we're not going to win. We're not going to win every battle. And y'all know that by now. We're not going to win every battle. But we are going to win this war. Y'all have a blessed day. Have a great day. And I will see you on Wednesday. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That was the wrong song. Here we go. That was the wrong song. What am I doing? It's been a little while since I've done a show. Just a second. It's been a little while. Okay. Let's try again. With the right exit music. There we go. All right. Y'all have a great day. See you later.